Hello and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and my guest this week is Jesse Gander. Jesse is a producer. I've been a fan of his records for a long time. He's done great records with Japan Droids, White Lung. I'm really, really into this band he just did called Brutus, which you'll hear us talk all about. He's up in Vancouver, Canada, just became one of the newest members of Noise Creators. And I wanted to sit down with him because I was sitting on Facebook and I heard this live recording he did with Brutus and it just blew me away. So you should get to know him, hit up his profile. We talk about a lot of cool things and his Spotify playlist that's on his profile is really awesome. He has a great approach to recording that I'm like really, really into. And I was really psyched I got to chat with him. In other news, the new edition of Get More Fans for 2019 is out complete with a whole new chapter on how to go from zero to 10,000 fans because I kept hearing from people about how much advice is in the book when you have a little bit of a fan base but not enough of none. So I decided to rectify that and write a whole thing because I've been doing a lot of work in that sector of bands just starting out and getting them past that mark where they have 10,000 monthly listeners on Spotify. I wrote all about the ideas we use to make that happen. So there's that as well. Before we play this podcast, I do want to tell you about Jay-Z Microphones. In particular, their Black Hole series, the BH2 and the BH1S, which are the result of relentless improvement of technology spanning more than 30 years. The mic wows you with clarity and richness. They incorporate a gold drop capsule technology using this innovation. The capsule's diaphragm is lighter, therefore it moves much faster and delivers more clarity, precision, as well as reducing colorations and distortions. These handcrafted studio microphones are designed for producers and are already used by world-class producers like Rafa Sardina, Tom Russo, Mark Urselli, Sylvia Massey, Rob Chiarelli, and many others. Right now, they're offering a deal that's 50% off for Black Hole Series microphones. Visit jzmike.com blackhole. Uh, I also want to say, they mailed me one of these, and I've been totally blown away by the clarity of it, and I don't have to say that. I'm going to keep using it, and I'm going to keep reporting back to you over these next few episodes about what I think about it, but so far... This mic has a stunning clarity, and out of the 30 mics in my mic collection, I'm pretty blown away by what I'm hearing. So, without further ado, I want to remind you my new book, Processing Creativity, is out on audiobook and any other format. So, if you like this conversation, I suggest you pick that up, because you'll like that too. And here's a quick commercial for my other podcast, and then we're going to get the fun started. Hello, my name is Jesse Cadden, and I've devoted my life to trying to go deep and figure out what goes into making great albums. In the past, I've been lucky enough to make great records with bands like The Cure, Animal Collective, The Misfits, and over a thousand others. I've written two books and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I am proud to present to you Atlantic Records' Inside the Album podcast. Atlantic has granted me unprecedented access to the artists, producers, managers, and A&R to discuss what goes into really making the great records they release. On this season, we talked to Dashboard Confessional about making a record that pleases both himself and fans both old and new. I like old stuff better, and I like moments and songs from our later era of recording. But as a whole body of work, I like everything up through half of Dusk and Summer. Jeff Richmond and the creators of the hit play Mean Girls talk about what goes into developing a mega-hit Broadway play and cast recording. Trying to find out what is that song that you actually want to like sit down and write is tricky and is a challenge because there's not that much real estate for songs, even though it's a musical. Vance Joy talks creating a follow-up to a successful debut album. And I'm more like eating my lunch before breakfast, kind of like 
getting too far ahead before I'm like focusing on just this one detail of what am I doing making a song. Pete Wentz of Fall Out Boy talks mentoring nothing nowhere. Like first you find out if you like someone's art. If you do and that's interesting to you, you find out what their basic mission statement as an artist is. And then you see if you can align with that vision. And we also talked to Grandson about crafting his highly politically charged debut EP, the indie rock band Wallows on making a record that sounds like the loss of youth, Jason Mraz on finding a greater truth in music for his latest LP, No, and Brent Cobb on making honest music. Subscribe now and stay tuned for the deepest inside look you will get into how great records are being made today. You can also head to AtlanticPodcast.com for more information on this podcast and Atlantic Records. So you meet somebody who's like a total normie and doesn't get anything about music. How do you tell them what you do? I guess I just tell them I make records for people or I help people make their records. I also own a recording studio, so most people would have an easy time sort of accepting that, I guess. Yes, that's a little easier to understand. So tell me about your background in music. Well, I've played music my whole life. I, I started, you know, on the piano when I was a kid, just playing in my parents' living room. But how I got started playing in, I guess, the music industry or the music scene would be um, when I was about 12 years old, I started a punk band called DBS. It was a band for 10 years with my friends, and we started really, really young. By the time we were 15, we were touring all over the United States and Europe and Canada, of course. Did about eight or 900 shows over the course wow. of about, basically between when we started, which was at the end of elementary school, and all the way up into high school and a few years afterwards. So that really kind of was my introduction in just DIY music and uh, yeah the music scene the music industry whatever you want to call it so how did that shift into producing I was just the singer, you know, I wasn't, uh, I didn't play an instrument. So all the other guys, you know, had invested in guitars and drums and stuff like that. You know, I had to buy a couple of microphones anyways to sing out of and ended up buying a PA system, which had a little mixer and just really um, started doing our demos just on an old, you know, crappy cassette recorder, like a ghetto blaster, whatever you want to call it. Just started feeling like I really wanted to, uh, you know, overdub some vocals on a demo. So, you know, I asked my dad for a, a four track cassette recorder for my birthday when I was 15 years old and I started using that all the time. Then every other band around wanted me to uh, do their demos but this was 25 years ago when, when digital really wasn't quite there yet, right? To do uh, affordable recordings. So back in those days, if you could even hear the vocal, let alone the kick drum on an old punk record, you were basically a musical genius as a producer. <laughs> totally true. And it sounds like, yeah, we were, we were doing this at about the same time as each other. So yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, by, by your credits, I, uh, I, I think I enjoy a few records you've produced, as a matter of fact. So uh, That's a great mutual thing since I enjoy a lot of yours. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, so... You know, I started making sure you could hear that kick drum and making sure you could hear that vocal. And yeah, I just always, always worked through, I'm a hard worker. I was just kind of, I was raised that way and always worked all through high school and spent all my money on, you know, more microphones. And I mean, four tracks are perfect in the way that it's so much more freedom than recording onto a ghetto blaster because you can overdub, but it's so limiting as well that it just makes you crave to have more choice. You know, like an eight track felt like a miracle to me. You know yes, what I mean? Yes. You're, you're like, okay, you got a track for the drums, track for the bass. If you got a two guitar player around, you can get both of them <laughs> and vocals. <laughs> so yeah, that became um, obviously a eight track quarter inch Tascam machine that I got cheap was the next logical step after that. Nice. And so how does this cycle into having your own studio and doing it more seriously? 
Well, I guess out of high school, you know, I was still playing in the band a lot, and, and I love that, and I still do play in bands and stuff, but I just really didn't feel like I wanted to make a career out of it because I, I think maybe just being brought up on kind of like, you know, anarchist, punk rock and stuff like that, uh, just the idea of charging enough money, charging what we were probably frankly worth, it didn't resonate well with me. I mean, I, I basically blame Fugazi, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, like... Great ethics, and it's cool if you're selling a million records. But when you're only selling a thousand, it's uh, it's hard to uh, hard to play those five dollar shows and see it as uh, any kind of a career. Um, <laughs> out of high school, you know, I was working working odd jobs and uh, working in factories and then coffee shop, and it was still recording. You know, like all through high school, I recorded tons of albums, um, even stuff that came out on vinyl. I recorded on my four track cassette, and I would borrow gear and and of course with my band, recording tons of albums. We recorded five albums in bigger studios, so I really learned a lot of you know the workflow and the techniques and just the uh, just kind of the ethics of being in a studio or the kind of more the feeling of being in the studio and how to kind of relax but also get a lot done and you know it really always resonated with me but I found a lot of people around me really sort of discouraged me from kind of making a career out of that because it's competitive and digital was on the the rise and a lot of people felt like they were going to be out of work because of you know home recording and whatnot but I didn't really believe in that and you know luckily I did have the support of my family who believed in me and stuff like that so I basically as soon as pro tools became affordable when they created the digi 001 interface oh yeah yeah and the yeah. 350 so megahertz the yeah the 350 megahertz mac g4 got the bottom of the line when it came out so i basically took out a five thousand dollar loan in canadian dollars <laughs> <laughs> that's like uh 2500 bucks us you know basically started recording bands on a 24 track instead of an eight track and then every hardcore band and punk band in my neighborhood was like well we want to work with you because that sounds good enough to us right so i guess a couple of those records ended up blowing up pretty good like uh probably the first real one the first album by three inches of blood um, oh, yeah. which, ended, which ended up getting them signed to roadrunner on something recorded on a digi 001 with the stock pre's and the stock plugins and no outboard gear <laughs> wow yeah none like z- literally zero that's crazy yeah well that's really rad so then where does that take you to having this really nice studio you have today well, basically from there, you know, I, I moved into a small commercial studio, um, actually the studio that my old band had recorded all their albums in. They had a B room and they uh, they basically rented it out to me. You know, I, I was recording out of houses at this point. Uh, first, my parents' house when my brothers, my older brothers moved out and went off to uh, work and college and stuff. And then um, later on, it, I got roommates and moved into my own place when I was 19 or 20 and uh, started basically renting out two rooms and recording bands in there and then into Profile Studios into their B room which was the studio we recorded at then I had an opportunity there was another small studio in East Vancouver where I live and it was called The Hive and um, that was a studio that they were kind of the other studio that was small yet recorded good bands in our neighborhood and you know I guess rather than us considering each other the competition instead we were actually behind the scenes in cahoots because The Hive I've had good microphones and good mic preamps, and I had good compressors and good different microphones and stuff like that. So we, what we were actually doing is lending one another gear all the time. They were still a, a, a basement studio, but I was in a smaller B room, like a commercial studio, but a small one. And that's where I did Three Inches of Blood. Yeah, and they found a bigger studio that had been built by Jimi Hendrix's cousin, who I guess had a lot of money and had 
keys to the Hendrix estate to some degree. And he'd built a big studio in one of the neighborhoods beside us in Vancouver, a neighborhood called Burnaby. And it basically built it. They had it open for a couple of years and then they'd abandoned it. They weren't making any money and they'd, they'd shut it down. So it was a $400,000 build. Uh, no gear in it, just, just the walls and the windows and the ISO booths and everything. Basically, the Hive approached me and said, hey, can we shut down, if you shut down your studio, will you, and, and my partner, Stu McKillop, who's still my partner to this day, um, will you shut down your studio too and we'll both move into this one big place? Because it was too big for them to take on, too big a step. And we did. We worked there for 10 years. And that's where we recorded Black Mountain and Japan Droids and White Lung, all kinds of great, great records and really became a sort of became a real go-to place for Vancouver at that time. And uh, during all that time, just I spent every dollar I made on gear, you know. I, I didn't have a car. I just rode my bike to work. I had holes. <laughs> I spent all my money on microphones. Nice. It's a, a great-looking space you guys got there and great-sounding, so that, that paid off. Yeah, exactly. This is actually the newer the newer location, which is sort of a similar story. Basically, the Hive, we did that for 10 years, and then uh, Colin moved back home to Victoria, B.C., where he's from, and he's still got a beautiful house studio there where he records lots of great stuff. And then me and Stu went on and took over this place called Greenhouse Studio A, which is what you see in my photos now. That's where we've been at for four years. It's a fantastic space. Um, that's recorded lots of great albums over the years. And they were basically looking for producers to, to take it over. So we moved all our gear in and that's, uh, that's where we're at now. Wow. Very cool. So why don't you tell me a little bit more about like what makes you as a producer? So you're saying you're just a singer. Do you play any instruments? I do, yeah. I'm I'm I'm, pr I'm primarily a keyboard player. Um, I still still play keyboards in a couple of bands, and I play keyboards on people's records too. But I I mostly am a singer and piano player. I also play bass too, and a little bit of guitar. I really focus on on that a lot, and I think that's also sort of I, I've always kind of regretted not being good at guitar because it's such a you know a cool instrument and everything. And I sort of envy people that play it. Piano has been a great, and keyboards and synthesizers has been a great thing because a lot of bands I record tend to not have a keyboard player, but would like a little bit of keys. So, so it kind of gives me a little bit of um, something I could contribute as a producer, um, being a musician as well. And then I was in choir for five years and have sang in bands for 20 years. So I always, uh, you know, I bring that to the table too, you know, writing harmonies and coaching people how to sing on tune and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, I use a lot of that band stuff in my everyday work for sure. Nice. Um, so with that, so I kind of like use a scale on this podcast of like, you have a Steve Albini who's not going to get involved in your songs at all, is barely going to tell you about the take you did. And then you have like a John Feldman who's like going to rewrite your song no matter what uh, when you walk in the door. Where do you see yourself usually on that scale? Well, it seems like a cop-out answer, but I kind of see myself right in the middle. Like, I can kind of relate to um, someone like Steve Albini and that, you know, that's what they feel their strength is. And and if, if people are okay with the, with the non-production, then that could be a great relationship. But me, I just like... I don't know if I sing with perfect pitch, but I know I hear with perfect pitch. I'm like, if I can help someone sing better in tune or if I can help people with their lyrics, like, you know, like last week working in, in Belgium, producing an album, you know, most of their lyrics are perfect, but some of them, the, the English is not quite correct. So I'm always going to help people with that. And, 
you know, when they're a new band where some of their songs are a little bit long, some of those songs are four and a half minutes and they should probably be three and a half minutes or, you know, stuff like that. They got a bridge that doesn't need to be there. I'm always kind of happy to chip that in, but, but I also find a lot of bands I work with on the other hand have rehearsed a lot. Like I'm not, I'm not working so much with, you know, like pop artists who don't even have a backing track yet. They're looking to have a real backing track produced from the ground up and then also have their vocals coached through, et cetera. Right. So I don't think that I'm at the level of, of, um, you know, like working with the matrix or something, you know, where it's like, you know, they're really going to build you a record. You know, they're, they're, they're almost like, you know, co-songwriters. I'm kind of more like try to help you, um, you know, be your own band, but be the best you've ever been as that band at that time within, you know, the budget that's allowed. So I love working with people on a creative and, and musical level, but I'm also, you know, I'm really obsessed with the technology and I love, I love working with gear and I am a gear nerd. So I really, really love the engineering side of it also. So I guess I try to kind of wear two hats. I don't normally try to uh, convince people that I'm going to make them their next hit, you know, and not like, this is what I'm going to do for you to make you, you know, get you on the radio. Like I don't, I don't always have a vision for people that's that deep, but um, when I hear a band and I really love it, um, which I, you know, all the bands I work with, I do, I I wouldn't work with someone who I didn't, you know, I always think of ways I could help them or or things that I could do to make it cool. Or maybe their courses need some, you know, maybe, maybe some stoner metal band needs a rip and ham and organ part behind the course, you know, and I'll do something like that, you know? So, so I guess that's sort of songwriting, but not quite, you know? Nice. So I, it might be a little redundant, but do you, do you feel there's something you bring to records most of the time with that? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, what most people tell me, um, why they come back to me, um, and, and most people I work with do come back to me, is because um, of my vocal coaching. That's like one of the real things that I think because, again, because I do believe I have perfect pitch, I can really help people sing in tune and sing better and um you know and I, I'm, I'm willing to use melodyne or or whatever if i need to and i'm no uh, i'm no purist but i am a purist in the sense that i want to get as great a take as i ever can before i have to resort to editing and and i i, I step on people to sing better and to drum more in time and things like that but i i try to be nice and try to be be friends and you know after um after a long day of me stepping all over a singer and getting them to sing in tune i make sure we like go for a beer afterwards and talk about records you know Um, remember why we're all while we're all in it so um try to be positive and i try to i try to critique people in a way that lets them know that it's okay to make mistakes and that um but also that we can we can that it's not meant to be easy like I always sort of say to people, like, just like in sports, just like in literature, like in directing a movie, you know, the easiest path is not going to get you to the most interesting results. Like, there has to be some pain, some challenge. Like, playing music is difficult. It, it takes practice. It takes takes a little bit of suffering, and that that makes it better. That's where I think the love lies uh, lies behind that for me. So I always kind of tell people, like, hey, I know you're nervous about singing. You know, you might be nervous about what I'm going to say when you start singing, but that's okay because if it's hard, that's okay too, right? You know, if we thought it was going to be so easy to make a record, we would have just booked an hour of studio time and you would have just went and sang it once. But instead we booked, (laughs) we booked five days to sing your vocals because we knew it was going to take some, take some work. So let's stop worrying about uh, being insecure about it and let's start looking at what we can improve. 
That's a really, really good way of putting that, and I, I really appreciate that. So what about what happens when you and a band disagree about something? How does that usually go down? I usually default to the band. Um, you know, like if, if if I suggest that they take out the bridge and they're adamantly against it, that's totally up to them, you know. I um you know, I, I, I really kind of want to make the records that people want to make for themselves. I can't help but have some sonic signature because, you know, I'm not without subjective opinion, you know, and I, and I can't help but be me and hear things in a certain way. But also, not everybody likes everything and not everybody hears everything the same. So I'm always pretty happy just to like, if it comes up to an argument, I'm always going to be the one to stand down, you know, I, I, unless it's something that's like, there's just a note that sounds so sour and wrong that I really think it's a poor idea that it be, be, a, be a part of a melody, you know, say with a vocal or something like that, then I might, you know, really kind of strongly feel like maybe that could be a lot better. I, I'm not a very aggressive person with uh, with stuff like that. I don't really want to... Um, I don't, I don't really like fighting with people, so I find more often than not it's kind of more like breaking ties within the band members. I find like that's often a thing, you know, and, mm. and sometimes that can be tough because you don't want to hurt someone who feels strongly about something. But but also they've, they've hired me often with the expectation that I'll give some opinion and having no opinion would actually be doing more of a disservice to them from what their expectations are of me. So if that's what their expectations are of me, then I'm going to weigh in even if it hurts someone a little bit. But then I try to make sure that person maybe maybe that they get an opinion in somewhere else that was more controversial or something like that right mm-hmm. so try to be diplomatic right nice how about the work you do before a band starts recording is pre-production a big part of your process it's a part of it. I find that like maybe it's the genre that I work in, but I find like a lot of bands have done a lot of that pre-production on their own because a lot of people do record these days and do, you know, they've, they've gone through their songs to a pretty thorough degree. But that said, some of the times they've, you know, stopped seeing the forest through the trees. So often what I get people to do when they ask me to specifically produce, uh, some people really just want me to engineer, um, in which case I'll still... I'll still help them, you know, with their vocals or whatever. But um, if they ask me to produce and take a look at their songs, um, I basically get them to send me any kind of recording. And normally the first thing I do, if there's any parts of the songs that feel awkward, like if there's a transition that feels uh, tacked on or tacked together, or some part that seems to be there just because someone thought of it, but not because it's necessarily awesome that is there, then I'll usually start by kind of looking at a really broad thing, because also I'm not listening to a very clear recording. It can sometimes just be a, you know, an iPhone recording or something of a jam space rehearsal. So I'll be like, hey, you know, why is the bridge eight if you're not going to sing? Maybe that bridge should just be a transition, you know, or maybe that should be the outro or something. And or maybe you should write a vocal for it so the part has more merit. So that often is um, something I'll look at or just general tempo stuff, too. You know, I'll tell people like, hey, you know, like, it doesn't need to be 220 BPM. Like, why don't we, it'll sound clearer on record if you practice it a little bit slower and practice it to a click and figure out, you know, a tempo where the song has a bit more power, you know, maybe sounds a lot of the time I find like the louder bands I'll record with, they'll be in band practice and they'll start playing faster and faster as they get more competent with the material. Um, and I'll say, Hey, you know, it's going to sound, it's actually going to sound heavier if you don't play so fast, you know, like if you you peel it back a bit, you're going to have a lot more space for the notes to sustain and you're going to be able to hit the drums harder and and it's going to sound more kick-ass even if it doesn't feel as kick-ass when you first try it. You know, it's going to come across that way to people listening to it. So, you know, I'll make those kinds of suggestions and stuff like that. But then getting in the studio, you know, the, the next... 
I'll, I'll be doing production on the fly too. You know, I'll be like helping people with lines and helping people with stuff that I notice as we lay it down, you know, and especially drummers with like, you know, helping them, you know, comp in the best fills or, you know, explore timing stuff, you know, like making sure it's all nice and tight, you know? So yeah. So there's sort of a few stages and, and in the mixing, I'll sometimes, I'll sometimes produce one more time. Like I'll, I'll, I'll get to a song. I will be listening to it for three or four hours doing a mix. And I'll just be like, why is there four choruses in this song? <laughs> and it will never, it'll, it never occurred to me on the first pass that it was so long-winded. And I'll just be like, let's make that first course half as long or something. You know, do something to switch it up. And I find often bands are pretty receptive to that. So, um, and, if, and again, if they're not, if they want to make it a long song that you can just, you know, chill out uh, and put it on, then, then that's cool too. Not everything has to be for the radio or something, you know. It could be an album track too, right? Nice. So is there any advice or like ethos you kind of give to each band before you guys get started? Well, I always, you know, feel like, I mean, friendship is number one. Like we, you know, if we're not playing music together as friends and people respect one another, then your band's just going to break up anyway. So it's probably not even worth spending the money to record it. You know, generally it's just like, you know, try to, try to dedicate, try, I try to make everybody's opinions count. You know, I, I often find like in bands or, or I'm sure you found this too. Sometimes the most creative people are, are not the people with the loudest voices, you know, oh, it's, yeah. uh, sometimes sometimes the person that's a little bit more shy, you know, needs to be empowered a little tiny bit. So maybe I kind of try to observe that. And, and if I notice that someone's not getting their opinion much in, but I notice that they're a wicked guitar player or something. I'll be like, "What do you think?" You know, like I'll try to I'll try to give them an opportunity to to speak. Um, but I think the main ethics ethos of it would be um, that we kind of um, have an idea about how much time we're going to kind of spend on things and what a general schedule will be like. Uh, you know, it's hard to predict sometimes how long things are going to take. Yeah, try to keep things on point. What I always tell people is that if you don't like anything I'm doing or if you don't like the way anything's sounding, tell me right away, you know, like I don't want to I don't want to ever say to someone, we'll fix it in the mix or, you know, we'll fix it in the or we'll fix my mix in the mastering. I'm like, if you mm-hmm. don't like it, let's figure it out now, you know, better. It's always the shortest path to get it dealt, dealt with and out of the way because then we can scratch it off the list and move on to the next job. So, so I feel like that's kind of something that I always try to reinforce the people especially if it's people that haven't worked with me before very cool how about what happens when somebody says nobody's going to hear that uh during a session i guess for me i mean sometimes i think that actually sometimes i'm like i know i was going to hear that but often you know the musician has heard that and 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 they might be feeling a little bit uptight about letting something go too so often i'll be like well we better just deal with that so you know and then you know when it comes to bands if there's like a member in the band that's you know sloppy and it's not like let's say the bass player is a bit sloppy and you're not going to hear a lot of definition in their playing because of that then often i'll try to kind of like a compensate for that like be like okay if you know we've got a really sloppy bass but a bad technique like you know let's 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 put some fuzz on the bass or do some distortion or you know or something that'll you know remove dynamics from their performance so it becomes more of just like an uh, a log of sound like an audio sausage <laughs> and often they're kind of a little more comfortable with that you know too or um or maybe they've already kind of tried that that technique because it does kind of work and sometimes you you get to Cliff Burton people, but sometimes you just got a Jason Newstead them, you know, it's just the way it is, you know, <laughs> and when the bass players rock and if they just can't quite hear it in the mix because I haven't quite got it dialed yet and there's some concern there, I always grab them by the shoulder and say, I would never Jason Newstead you all, I will always Cliff Burton you and I just say, you just gotta believe me. <laughs> um, I find more often than not people are a little bit worried, but then... I don't know. I've been using Pro Tools for 20 years. So if someone's struggling with something and I can see uh, an edit um, on my horizon, which I usually can because I'm 
very, very competent with a with this program I've been using for 20 years all day, every day, <laughs> I'll be like, don't worry about that. Let's just fix that one. You know, we got bigger fish to fry. You know, the whole song's in the pocket. We got a crappy fill. Let's fix the crappy fill, <laughs> you know, or grab it from another playlist. I, I always get everybody to sing, uh, you know, sing or play everything three or four times. So if it's a chronic problem, we should look at simplifying it. Um, one of the musicians I've recorded the most is a guy named James from the band, uh, James Farwell from Bison and Streets. He's a great heavy metal and punk rock guitar player. And uh, he always says, keep it simple, stupid. Dumber is gooder. Dumber is gooder. So if, so- <laughs> if, if something's really complicated and people are screwing it up, I say, why does the filter be so complicated? Dumber is gooder. What would ACDC do? You know, strip, strip it down, make it, make it count, you know? What, you know are the, it's not a competition. The Ramones aren't competing, <laughs> you know? They're trying to make good punk rock. Nice. I like that a lot. Talking a, a little bit about you know the performance to a bass thing, about how long do you like to tell bands that you need to do to make each song if it's like a full-length record? About how much studio time do you normally need? How, or how do you figure that out? I usually say for like a reasonably well-produced thing where we've taken a good look at some, you know, creative elements to it. And, you know, maybe put a couple things in there that weren't there before. Took a look at some songwriting stuff that maybe could be improved. I usually say about a day a song. You know, like I usually find like including mixing in two weeks, I can usually get a really good record done, like an actual produced full length. I've banged out rec- full length records in three days before, too, where we spent two recording and one mixing. But again, that's not producing, that's engineering, you know. Yes. So, so that's I'm, I'm not afraid to make something that's raw and something that's, you know, something that's more of a punk thing. I, I do I do less of it these days. I do more albums and less kind of, uh, you know, demos or seven inches or that kind of thing. But I, I, I like doing them once in a while. I like how there's, you know, sometimes I like like the lack of commitment to it that you just try to make it sound real crazy and have some fun and you know don't worry about you know production stuff so much but if people are looking for a produced album um then i definitely say i need about a day of song and and i can usually mix i mean in a perfect world for me i would mix one day a song but in, mm-hmm. in reality i usually mix two or three songs in a day so a full-length album i can usually mix it in about four days Sometimes there's a sometimes there's another extra day tacked on just to deal with all the little you know all the little things that that bug people or bug me or you know things that didn't translate as well as I hope they would you know when I heard it in the car that you know that kind of thing the the last yes. minute notes that often make a big difference but in a couple of weeks I'm usually making something that sounds pretty pretty slick nice what is the what's the musical bane of your existence the musical bane of my existence what I really don't like sometimes I'm okay with it in certain scenarios but. I, 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 I like people that play well within their abilities instead of are trying to be at another ability that they're just not there yet. Thinking a lot about drummers with this comment as well, like, I don't think music is a competition and it doesn't have to be complicated to kick ass. I mean, often it's better the other way, right? So I guess if people are trying to, you know, if it's a heavy metal band where the drummer's trying to lay down a bunch of double kick, but they just haven't spent those hours in the jam space that something as tricky as that takes, then I think that they should leave it off the record until they've figured it out. You know, if, if you don't feel you can nail it, why do it, you know? Because it sounds, because often those drummers that are like struggling to get some double kick part or something, like something really fast with their foot down, you know, they actually rock as playing something, you know, that's more mid tempo or something that's more simple. And it sounds great, you know. So um, I often feel like you're doing yourself a disservice by by trying so hard to pull off something that you can't quite pull off yet. On the flip side of that, though, sometimes a bunch of 18-year-old kids, and it's their first band, and they're just trying to play their asses off to make an impression on people or try to explore their own, 
you know, musical abilities can be a really like exciting thing to hear. And I mean, even like a band like Japan Roids on their first record, like it's obviously a raw, like filthy record, but it, it made an impression on people because you could tell that like they're struggling. You know, the music is not fully locked in. It's it's kind of about to fly off the handle. Um, that's also a two day record, I might add, or a three wow. day, a th- three day record. Uh, I think two days to record, one day to mix. Went on to sell tens of thousands of albums. But I think that 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 it was refreshing to people, maybe when it came out because it sounds insane <laughs> or like something that nobody would do. So I guess that's not always a bad thing. And I, and I don't wish that the first Japan Roads record was covered in a bunch of friggin' double kick or something. You know what I mean? Like, mm. I'm glad it is the way it is. So I guess that's that. And I guess also I think maybe the other thing that is that maybe comes to mind is it's okay to be fusion. It's okay to have w- different people in the band that bring, bring different influences to the table. And of course, some of the best musical collaborations of all time stem from that type of scenario. But when there's like three people that are on the page, but they got the new, you know, and they're playing in a good punk band or something, but then the guitar player is some, you know, wanker that just wants to shred and is just glad someone will have them. So he's like noodling like crazy whatever. everybody <laughs> else is keeping it to the point I guess that really kind of sticks out to me you know um, maybe for a third if you're a bass player maybe you don't want to fake the funk if you could bring <laughs> the funk let's have it but never fake the funk <laughs> never I like that a lot so let's shift gears a little into some uh, gear nerdy stuff do you have a philosophy about the equipment that you like to get I do to a point I mean I find because like these days plugins are so good and I love them and I use so many of them that when I'm going to actually invest money into a piece of outboard gear, I like something that has a sound. Um, things that serve kind of more um, pedestrian purposes, I find I can do that often quite well digitally. And I've found that the equipment that has a sound often are the classics. Things like if you're talking about a compressor, like there's a reason why people like an 1176. It just sounds aggressive and it makes snares pop and it makes vocals in your face and you know what I mean it has a sound and that's why it makes people excited to use it and that's why it might be worth buying something like that for your own recordings you know same with um EQs too like there are some analog EQs out there that just really have a special sound and you really when you when you grab them you just feel like you can crank them and that it never sounds bad and uh and that's a real treat and you can really you can really separate the the sound of um of a really pro mix versus an amateur mix having those kinds of tools sometimes they can be real shortcuts to uh to clarity and to size and i think the again the eqs that make people excited even the you know the eqs built into a more modern ssl console like like a 9K or something like that, you feel like you can crank them and things get better. And they have a slight aggressiveness to them, and that's what makes people excited. Um, Whereas, you know, for the surgical stuff, I'm really happy with digital EQ. You know, I feel like for a clean EQ, man, when I'm cutting, I'm just like something like FabFilter Pro Q3. I mean, it it just sounds so, like it sounds better than analog. Like, I'm sorry, but... It's life-changing EQ. Yeah, it, it sounds better than analog at that job. But when it comes to cranking the high shelves, it sounds killer. It's a killer digital EQ. I, I love cranking the top end on a Clarifonic, you know, like it sounds, it's strong and it's bold and it works and it makes your mix 
really zing. Take your head right off if you want. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of a philosophy of mine these days. Um, so I don't really care so much about, um, like I'm not a collector of equipment, even though I have a collection of equipment. I don't buy equipment because it's going to have value down the road. I buy equipment because we're going to use it every day. So if that means buying, you know, if you can't afford the real you know, whatever, name X compressor here, and you want to buy the clone of X compressor here uh, or whatever, then fair enough. So I, that's how I kind of feel. I feel like that sort of thing, though, has, I think it still has value to own. And, and I, I put them to work in my productions. And I record people in studios and project studios in other countries and other cities that don't have any gear. And that's okay, too. I'll, I'll, I'll make it work in the mix. But it feels good to, to have a little bit going in of uh, some cool analog stuff. And it doesn't have to be found that that expensive these days. I build some of my own gear too. I bought, I built a bunch of Seventh Circle Audio mic pre's. That oh nice. Yeah, you know, a couple hundred bucks to build. My you know, my dad was electrician. He showed me how to solder. I learned in like you know ten minutes. It's really not that complicated. <laughs> uh, showed me how to use a digital multimeter. Same thing. It's a five or ten minute lesson to learn how to measure a capacitor. It's like it's not as intimidating as it as it feels. And then you know you can build some nice Neve clones or API clones, and that can be a real a real benefit to the recording. Yeah, but that said, I guess also I feel people are also really obsessed uh, with that, and I and I also think that can be uh, that can also maybe stop you to see the forest from the trees. Like like I love you know Neve mic preamps and I love API mic preamps and stuff like that. But also I can record on stock preamps like from a, a basic interface, like you know an Apollo or a Focusrite or whatever. And um, you know you get a plainer sounding recording. The recording doesn't have quite as much heat at the source, but. You know, then there's lots of plugins and lots of ways you can add harmonic distortion and add color. It may not be your your preferred method, but it'll get you 99, you know, or 95 percent of the way there to the point that it sounds great. So, so I, I'm not I'm not a snob about that stuff. I don't really care to the point that it would stop me from working at a studio if they didn't have you know special boutique type stuff. Nice. It's nice to also hear that you're, you're, you're just as much of a plug-in as an outboard person because uh, it confirms what I hear. I'm like, oh, you know, it sounds like you're using some modern elements with some classic elements in your records. I'm really inspired by plugins now. I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually, I'm actually more inspired by plugins than outboard gear because plugins have gotten so cheap. You know, like they're they used to be 800 bucks for a, for a digital reverb for your Pro Tools system or something, and now you know you get a new reverb for 50 or 100 bucks, and it'll like it'll make your mix. You know, or or some of the new compressors that are coming out, like they really grab and sound great. And sometimes I'll buy a new plugin for 29 bucks, and I use it all over a mix, and and that'll give me um a new sound for that record that I never had before. It's, it's important for me to keep me inspired and to switch things up because I've mixed 600 records wow, <laughs> and, I, and I, I need new stuff to keep me, keep me always stoked. So, so I really love the business model of um, some of these smaller companies like Fuse Audio Labs, like oh, Jared. I don't know them. I'm a, this is this is good note taking yeah, time. Yeah, check out Fuse Audio Labs. They're the guys that actually do the coding for like Plugin Alliance and some of the bigger companies. Ooh. But now they got their own company and they sell their plugins for twenty nine bucks. And they're all emulations of obs of obscure gear, like old RCA tube compressors and you know stuff like that. And uh, they even they even emulate the a four track Porta Studio, a Tascam uh, Porta oh Studio. Oh my god! Yeah, that's my first one. Yeah, yeah. super cool. Yeah, it's the Tascam. Tascam 2448 or whatever it's called 244 Tascam 244 mm -hmm. whatever it's called and uh, yeah they emulate stuff like that that stuff is really fun uh, for me um, the other company is uh, Black Rooster too they're, they're also the same guys I think they're Germans as well and they do like 
again, like cool, like EQs and, and tape emulations and stuff that not everybody uses. So I've been really jazzed on them. Almost every month they come out with a new $29 plug and that just like, oh, wow, totally rocks and is like top notch sound quality. Simple, simple interfaces and super good sound. Have you uh, gone through the muddy pit of getting into the Acoustica stuff? Um, I haven't yet. Um, I, I've I've demoed their latest stuff. I've demoed El Ray and uh, and Top or Tape or whatever it's pronounced. I, I, I love Top. I did not love El Ray. I don't think they they've nailed compression quite yet. I feel the I same love, way. I love the Neve EQ is insane. The Talp is just the most amazing thing for finding a quick color for something. Yeah, Talp is really cool. I had to I had to master and mix a Swedish heavy metal record from Vancouver, two Swedes that moved to Vancouver. Um, that sound wow. is, they sound exact like really old Judas Priest or like pre Dickinson Iron Maiden stuff. Um, like the, like Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden. So it really had to have that slightly crisp but not a lot of air type sound. I used the, the demo of Talp to do that master and it was really really did help me kind of get that sound and then el ray i thought it sounded nice and i did use it on a, on a record but um i agree if you try the uh the fuse audio labs it's called like a vcl 25 or something i think it's an emulation of basically the same compressor but just being algorithmic the action is so much better and the interface is so much more you know it's so much more efficient so yeah i mean I, I think the tech is cool and i'm glad that people are doing something different than just algorithmic plug-in like uh, created with spice or something like that but i've i found it expensive so far and i i had a 200 dollars plug-in especially us whereas that converts to canadian quite poorly like to, that's closer to 300 in canadian dollars which you know starts to feel pretty steep so yeah i haven't uh, i haven't fully jumped on but i'm uh, my ears are open and uh, i'm definitely following the threads and i'm i'm demoing the plugins and i and i know i know there'll be some that i buy sooner than later and 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 i do agree that that taup is a very cool sounding plugin yeah i, I that, that's been my uh, up to soothe i'm calling that plugin of the decade right now yeah that one's cool soothe is cool too that's another small company doing really forward-thinking stuff great interfaces as well so let's go over like how you feel about some more of the modern production stuff do you amp simulators have a role in your productions not often. I mean, when you record with me at my studio, basically, basically never. I have about 20 tube amps that are all there and ready for you. So we have all the high gain stuff. And my, my studio partner, Stu McKillop's a guitar player. So he's got, we got a bunch of old Marshalls, a bunch of old Canadian stuff, like trainers and stuff that just like rock. Oh, love that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and of course all the, all the usual suspects, fenders, boxes, Mesa boogies, stuff like that. So, so, you know, generally I use that, um, as a, as a first and foremost, but however, as I'm sure a lot of people and yourself has probably found, home recording hasn't taken away work from me. It's actually brought me more because a lot of people are doing a good job recording themselves and they have pretty good preamps and pretty good mics and stuff, but they just get to the mixing stage and realize how friggin' difficult it is to achieve what they're achieving. So I'm getting um, more than half my work these days um, is just mixing. And a lot of it has been bands from other countries. I'm, I'm doing a lot of mixing for people from South America and a lot of mixing from people from Europe and Great Britain and stuff like that. So for those records, a lot of them have been sending me DIs because maybe they recorded them in small spaces or maybe they didn't have good amps. And if the budget allows, I'll sometimes reamp those. But, uh, you know, if the budget doesn't allow, then I, then I have I have done whole records with, with amp simulators at this point in time. And on one or two occasions, I felt like it was a slight compromise. And on other occasions, it was like turned out even better than my records normally turn out. And it made me wondering why I don't just use them all the time. 
so that's where I've been getting it. You know, ever since I tried Hellraiser from JST, I'm like, man, this is when I'm I'm dialing in my amp and DI tone, and then I'm like going back to what I dial on that, and I'm like, wow, the Sim's gonna win again, huh? Yeah, I got to check that out, and also like, you know, this this year was all of a sudden the plug-in reverbs got killer. The previous year, all the plug-in compressors got killer. And I believe that this year, by by, by what I'm seeing coming out of NAM and stuff that just happened, it looks like the next gen of uh, plug-in amp simulators are going to come out, which which looks to me like they're probably going to be uh, approaching the level of, uh, you know, Kempers and that sort of thing. Like, I, I've, I've demoed Line 6 Helix uh, native, yeah. and I used that on an entire record, kind of a pop-punk record I mixed, and uh, I was very happy with it. Um, on that particular day, I, I demoed because I, I needed to use amp simulators. I didn't have the time or the budget to, to reamp. So I tried my usual, which was the Scuffum one, which I did, which I've used on a couple of records and really liked it. But I didn't work for didn't work for me on this one for some reason. So I thought, okay, and the and the older ones, I just was not buying it for some reason. So I, I demoed Line Six Helix, and I, I did really like it. I in fact I, I liked it to the point that. Um, any complaints I'd ever heard about it, I I didn't really agree with. I, I actually thought it was, I thought it sounded pretty top notch. So that was cool. And I do believe, you know, there's, there's going to be a generation within the next year or two that just takes it to that next level of detail, you know, so. Yeah, I, I joke that, like, I, the reason I have to download them all immediately when they come out is so that I know when to start selling our amps. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I kind of want them to work because, you know, also sometimes, like, tube amps are finicky. Some days they don't sound as good, and someday my mic doesn't sound as good. And, you know, or sometimes people have, like, a guitar amp that they're just feel, they feel really committed to, but it just... I just sort of get to the mix and I realize I really just really don't like it. Um, so often what I've done in those scenarios is I'll, I always take a DI and sometimes I sneak an amp sim underneath real sounds too, like to compensate for what I don't like. I do that almost every time on bass guitar. I, I use I use amp sims on bass guitar DIs aligned with regular DIs and regular amp signals and amp DIs, which I also use. I put DI boxes in between the amp and the speaker quite a bit. I'll, I'll do that quite a lot. Or in the case of like some records like um, like uh, Japan Droid's uh, Celebration Rock, that, that record is, it is the real amps that, that Brian from Japan Droid's plays through, but it's also a little bit of a DI blended with um, with a rat simulation pedal, the Massey Rat, <laughs> and then just, oh, tucked, yeah. and just tucked in there for that little bit of like Bob Mold, Husker Do, like trebly top end that I really kind of like. So so I'll sometimes <laughs> sneak an element into someone's sound that isn't always there. And that'll be, you know, so I, I do use them. And yeah, I'm, I'm into it. I'm, I'm no, no purist against them, that's for sure. Nice. That's really cool. How about sample-midi drums? Yeah, I've never done a record with MIDI drums before. I've never mixed one with MIDI drums either. But samples, absolutely, I've used them. I don't use them as a rule. I don't use them by default or on every drum. But uh, but I certainly do use them. You know, I kind of like... I use them to fix problems. I mean, I'm lucky in that I do have a great drum room and, you know, great drum kits and all that stuff. So I don't really have to uh, compensate for um, a lack of sound quality in the, in the, in the place that I work. Cause I've, I've 25 foot arch ceilings, you know, I'm, I'm lucky <laughs> yeah. that way and hardwood floors and everything. But, but I find that um, I often do it to compensate for people's technique. So I actually use it more for dynamic control than I do for uh, sonic, you know, reassignment. I mean, typically, like, if, if a kick drum, if he just has, you know, the drummer, he or she just has a little bit too much dynamics on the kick pedal, more than I think the music calls for, whether it be, you know, 
uh, known to them or not. Sometimes I'll put a sample underneath a kick drum that has a lot less dynamics, just so I can, you know, instead of compressing the heck out of it, you know, I'll blend a bit of, even if I blend one third sample, that will solve the problem of the excess dynamic range by a third, you know, and still have the natural tone. So I do that a lot. And, and then with snare drums, I'll sometimes use samples for the purpose of uh, reducing hi-hat bleed. If people play yes. the hi-hats too hard, um, or if their hi-hats are crappy or, you know, or, or maybe if the snare is not being hit hard enough, or it's just not a very clean recording for whatever reason, that sometimes I'll, again, I'll, I'll, even if I just use, you know, a third sample or something like that, then that'll reduce my hi-hat bleed problem by one-third, whereas, like, compressing by a third more, you know, it might just make the loudest hits over-compressed, and then the quiet hits the right amount of compressed, and then you kind of, you know, you're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater a little bit that way, right? So, yeah. so, so that, tends, that tends to be why I use them. And I'm, I'm really good at tuning toms, so I don't normally have to. Uh, I don't know. I've actually never triggered a tom in my life. Um, wow. Uh, I mean, I would, but I find it just never really works well for me. Um, and I, I do try to you know, I work pretty, uh, the studio's pretty close to the music store. I try to get the right skins and tune them, tune them good. And also there's a lot of really cool plugins for fixing uh, Tom Bleed and stuff like that these days. Like um, like the Boz uh, Digital Labs plugins are like... like uh, great Beautiful Door or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Big Beautiful Door, Gatey Weighty and Transgressor. Those plugins are really good for getting bleed out of Toms. Uh, so I use those a lot. And then I'll... Tried uh, Wilkinson Debleeder. I have tried Wilkinson Debleeder too. Yeah, I like that one also. Um, that uh, I, I find it's sort of um, to crapshoot which one turns out, which one works better. I'm stoked to hear the new Slate drum gate as well. So whenever that comes out i'll definitely demo that one as well nice so uh, while we stick with drums can you tell me about some of your favorite drums yeah totally i mean for me um at the studio we have three kits and they're all ludwigs we have a, a new maple ludwig with big sizes like um you know 24 inch kicks and 18 inch toms floor toms and that one's a drier denser kind of kit which is cool but typically i use uh, the older ones so we have a 60s um, standard sized ludwig birch kit which is what i use most of the time especially for like punk or something like that um it's just regular old 22 inches 13 16 for the toms and then we also have this the bigger 70s like bonham ludwig kit with the 24 14, 18, and I'll use that for slower music or people that just want. It's got a little more character, and it um, you got to wrestle a little bit more, and you got to play a little harder, but it, it sounds cool. Um, for snare drums, I use a Vancouver company quite a bit called Dunnett. Uh, Dunnett, mm. they make pretty famous drums now. Slate samples a lot of Dunnett's yes. in, their, in their packs. Um, so that those are made in, in my hometown of Vancouver. I use those quite a bit. We have a titanium Dunnett. Um, we also, I love the Ludwig Superphonic. I mean, in general, I use metal snares. I'm, I'm not against wood snares. People, people love them and they're partial to them, and that's cool too. But uh, for me, I, I kind of feel like the louder and the brighter, the better, just to get it to cut through. So I tend to I tend to use kind of those, you know, just kind of like the regular superphonics and stuff like that. Uh, big, uh, I love Black Beauty as well, Ludwig. So Ludwigs are the main ones I, I use for sure. And um, and cymbals, I mean, I feel like the cymbals are even more important than the drums um, just because, you know, you're not going to trigger cymbals. Um, <laughs> well, I guess you could, but I sure don't want to. Um, <laughs> definitely don't want to. Yeah, I haven't been down that road yet. <laughs> no, I don't want to if I don't have to. So, But uh, that's also why I tell drummers always, like, 
bring in darker, smoother symbols, you know, don't bring in the brightest symbols, the ones that are, you know, marketed towards playing live or, or, or B grade symbols like Sabian B8, stuff like that. I always tell people like, don't even bother bringing them in because that's when you've got to start breaking out the triggers because the symbols are too bright on all the drums and they bleed into everything. So I always say, get something good like, um... K Zildjian, I love higher end Sabian stuff. I like too. Love all the Pisces stuff, like dark energy hats. Um, I always say, you know, you know, kind of darker, warmer cymbals record better because then you can crank up the overheads and get that size around the drum kit so that the cymbals getting too loud. So that's that's often my advice for people. Um, not everybody shares that feeling with me, but but that's also it. Just goes align with my mic technique on drums as well. So. When all those things line up, then we end up with a really good drum sound. So, how about a uh, favorite amp? Favorite guitar amps? Yeah, I have a few. I have more than a few. I'd say like I actually love JCM 800 Marshalls um, for punk rock, but I do sometimes put a tube screamer on them. That's doing nothing, like a tube screamer with the drive all the way down and the output kind of all the way or almost all the way up. Or I use a local company's pedals a lot, the Union Tube and Transistor. They make the Union more, which is for driving amps harder. It's a clean boost, but just a really friggin' good clean boost it's 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 they make all the pedals they, they, they're very heavily endorsed by jack white so that's kind of their claim oh. to fame uh, he uses their pedals as his mic preamps apparently <laughs> so wow yeah they're very cool um the the union more is kind of a very kind of a ubiquitous pedal around around my parts and and often a lot of studio guys like those too you can you can buy them at vintage king and stuff they're one of those kind of more boutique brands um but yeah so amps i use that i love uh, the vox ac30 is probably my all-time favorite amp like a good ac30 i love it i love the high cut because it just like i hate it when amps are too shrill and the ac30 just gives you a knob to deal with that so i love that um for heavier stuff i love um i love soldano's the best um like for metal Saldano Avenger is probably my favorite amplifier. Um, I, I think it sounds basically perfect. For bass, I use um, I use mostly orange 8200. I have a really good 8200 that I love. Oh, wow. I use that a lot. Um, I also love old trainers, like trainer YBA1s. That's the, the best. I, that's my favorite. That's what I have to buy this year. Yeah. Well, you used to be able to get them in Canada for 350 bucks. I actually, Canadian. <laughs> it's like 200 wow. US. I, I used to, I got mine for free. So back when they were 250, 300 bucks, we, uh, we like bought them all the time and just kept a bunch on hand um, because like they're basically a plexi with a mod and you can even mod them to make them a plexi but they're killer on bass and um but then people found out that that's what uh, steve albini was using so then the price went up that was how i got there yeah now they're all 800 or 900 bucks uh, or a thousand bucks so but there's still a ton of them all over vancouver because well they were made in vancouver they were made in toronto but they're still there's like basically in canada in the 60s if you had money then if you're a professional musician, you had money, you had a Fender. And if you couldn't afford a Fender, you got a trainer. And if you couldn't afford a trainer, then you got a Sears. So that's basically, <laughs> that's, that's how it worked. Apparently. I think the, the only re- replacement here on the East Coast of America was uh, PV being the bottom. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, But now some of those PVs are starting to come back into fashion. Some of their 70s ones oh, are yeah. really cool. Same with like those old acoustics and stuff like that. I used to think oh, was, yeah. I used to think those things were so crappy, but I've, I've changed my tune on them. I think they sound really great. Really, really like uh, a lot of acoustic amps. I, I like I like a lot of solid state stuff too. I even love old uh, old Galleon Kruger uh, 800 RBs. That's one of my favorite like punk rock really? bass sounds. Wow, that is an amp I can't 
can't stand behind. But. I love. I don't know. I like when you crank them up. I love them. I don't know. I. They, I mean, it's got to be the right sound. But I. I. Uh, I, I actually really like those. So <laughs> that's fine. We we just sold ours like three months ago. So <laughs> don't think I'm gonna be giving it a second try. <laughs> good enough for Flea. <laughs> no, no, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Good enough for Flea. <laughs> So while we shift gears and learn a little bit about what makes you you, is there a good lesson you've learned from another producer that's one of your like touchstones? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I learned something from, I got to engineer a couple of records that uh, that um, Jim Diamond from Detroit produced, who did, uh, you know, White Stripes. And he, he produced a couple of Pack AD records that I engineered. They're a Vancouver two-piece uh, garage rock band. And just how fast he works and how little he sweats the details and how much he'll just crank knobs on guitar pedals to reckless abandon it was really inspiring me to just watch that like like he came to vancouver and he worked at the hive my old studio and just he brought a color sound tone bender and a color sound um some kind of fuzz i can't remember which one it was but he just like brought a couple of funky old pedals and just like on all of becky's guitar tracks he just like his his idea of production is really making the sound cool he he didn't ride the performances that hard or that kind of thing. And um, he definitely kind of let things go that were not a big deal. Like, not like, ah, nobody will. He, he kind of took that nobody will ever hear that little mistake kind of philosophy, mm-hmm. and, which I think was the right approach for their particular record, not being a not, not being a deeply technical band, being more of a band where the where the, where the the uh, the emotion of the music and the sound of the music is what kind of carries it, I think. And just like the fact that he'd be like, okay, let's just chuck this pedal on this guitar. Let's crank the shit out of it. And then let's go. You know, and I, I think that's a great, a great lesson that I learned that was just like, just be fearless. Don't worry about it. Like, don't, don't, don't sit there for two hours and move that drive knob like one millimeter and record a bunch of, a bunch of different ways. Like, just try something like, who cares if it's weird? Who cares if it's going to like sound like different or not be like exactly the thing like sometimes you just have to let things turn out a certain way and and then and then you know you always these days we're multi-tracking get to the mix and if um if something needs to be a little bit brighter or or a little bit fatter then you know you have eq for that you can do things that will we'll fix that i feel like that's kind of a cool lesson for me to to watch yeah I, f- I feel like that's maybe one of the first things that comes to my mind nice how about one of the best moments you've had in the studio i'd say like I don't know, man, making records like there's uh, there's a lot of joy and a lot of tears. Um, <laughs> yeah, I always feel like, I mean, I felt inspired. I guess maybe one of the more positive, um, you know, there's been a few moments that I'm just trying to think of what, what would be the very best. There's there's so many kind of memories that start flooding back when you ask a question like that. This is uh, so recording the first uh, Three Inches of Blood record, the singer Cam Pipes. So they had two singers. They had one guy, Jamie Hooper, does all the screaming. And then Cam Pipes did all the really high, like Bruce Dickinson type singing. But he never really sang on a full length record before. He was new to playing in a band, although he's sort of a naturally gifted singer. So I said, hey, man, go step out, get yourself some lunch. You know, we're going to work hard on these vocals. So, you know, get energized, go for a walk around the neighborhood. And while he was out going for a walk, I uh, set up a bunch of candles on the floor of the studio into a giant uh, pentagram. <laughs> and uh, then I had the microphone in the center of the pentagram. And then when he showed up to do his vocals, he got to feel like he was just the center of all evil. And uh, then he got to, he just felt immediately inspired. And we uh, had a great, great vocal session. And then later on that week, uh, this is really early on in my career. I was only probably 21 years old at that time. And I'm, I'm, I'm 40 years old now. 
Uh, so it was 19 years ago or so. We did the gang vocals for the end for the last song on the record, Balls of Ice, where people <laughs> chant balls, 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 ice, ice, ice over and over. And we had like every punk rocker from our neighborhood and headbanger all come to my studio. And it was a tiny little place. This is back when I was in the B Studio Commercial Drive. We packed like a hundred maniacs in this tiny little room. It was so hot and sweaty and gross. And uh, set up a couple of mics and just had the whole gang screaming balls. And it was just like, <laughs> just, a, you know, an ice. And it was just so, it was so ridiculous and just so much fun. That exact moment, I think, is maybe when my career became cemented that this was going to always be a full-time job for me for my life is that because all those people were in bands and they were just like that night was so fun and everybody was laughing and just like having a riot making this absurd heavy metal song and um yeah i got a lot of calls for work after that night and and a lot of those people are still my clients to this day like people that i've now made 10 albums for and and stuff like that so so That's that was rash. a really, a really, really, really great moment uh, for sure. And uh, recently, I had a, I had a singer say she was doing a take, and then she said, "I'm not going to say who this is, by the way." Um, she was doing a take, and uh, was like, "Hey, actually, can you hold on a second? Um, I see you use the bathroom." And I was like, yeah, cool. She showed up and she went into the bathroom and then came down about 10 or 15 minutes later and said, um, yeah, so um, I'm pregnant. <laughs> she, she went up and did her pregnancy test in the bathroom in, in between takes. And I got to be the first person to find out she was pregnant, her recording engineer. <laughs> wow. But I'm not, I'm not going to say who it is yet. It's too new. Yeah. So that was an exciting, that was an exciting, uh, exciting moment. Definitely like a little bit of hugging and a little bit of tears. You know, wow. <laughs> tears, tears of joy. <laughs> so, how about one of the worst moments of what you learned from it? One of the worst moments was was this one guy. Actually, it's you know, you could tell how immediately the story came into my mind. <laughs> this is actually one of the only really bad moments. Um, okay, well, I'll preface it by saying I, I had a, a new intern. A young woman had had come to me, asked me to teach her how to be a recording engineer. So I said, absolutely, hang out for whatever, a couple months, a couple years, whatever you need to, and help me wrap cables, and I'll tell you whatever you want to know. So she was probably about, you know, one week into working with me and had just sort of learned how to, you know, do a punch-in on Pro Tools and whatever, you know, just basically recording. But yeah, this this bass player, he was an absolutely incredible bass player, like, like perhaps even one of the tightest I've ever recorded. But he just was not comfortable with himself outside of just doing something absolutely perfect. And he was recording this incredibly difficult kind of like jazz fusion rock album, like playing off sheet music, not improvising, not playing off of rehearsal or memory, but playing off of sheet music. He couldn't nail this part. And um, they were tracking live as well. So this was like, not like me working with him one-on-one. -on -one. And he got so pissed off that he just punched my wall in my studio. And I just like threw him out. I said, no. Like, you don't punch my wall. Like, like wow. you know, there's, there's no, there's no, I will never allow, like, it's not violence towards a person, but it's still violence. You can't punch the wall. Like, hey, it's my wall. And, you know, you know, you're just going to like, we could do a punch in and then we can fix the, <laughs> we can fix the difficult part, but you can't punch the wall. So I threw him out. I said, yeah, get, you know, get out of here. Like, you can't punch the wall. Bye. And then the guitar player, you know, I, I was, I was angry. And then the guitar player came and talked to me and was like, hey, you know, we're really sorry. You know, will you give us one more shot? And I was like, 
I said, all right, but I said, but I'm pissed off now, so I'm going to go get a sandwich. My intern's going to record him, and I made her record him right away. So I was like, here you are in the hot seat, day one in the studio, and, <laughs> and you're recording the bass player who's punching the wall. <laughs> and I said, I'll, I'll come back in an hour if I had a sandwich, and then I'll get back to work, and I'll work with you again. So it's, you know, this is not, whatever. We all make mistakes, and we can we can apologize and get along. That's uh, that's except to do it once. If you punched it again, I'd throw him up for good. But um, So that was kind of a... That was kind of a funny, a funny one, um, or, or one I didn't care to relive. But I, mostly, it's been reasonably drama-free. Most of my sessions, I, I kind of try to. I don't know what it is. I think it's maybe that like a lot of a lot of the bands that that come to me, they really they really want it to be good. And sometimes people have problems with, you know, drugs or drinking or something like that. But the time that they're in the studio, they just like it really means a lot to them to to nail what they're doing. And if like starting drinking at 11 a.m. is not going to help them with that, then, then most of them, most of them won't, you know, most of them will try to wait for that kind of stuff to happen. So mo- most of the time things are, are a little bit more, you know, they're, they're more like a day job than they are like a wild party most of the time, uh, at least, at least with me. So, and I kind of like that, but Hey, there's always, there's always sessions that are difficult. I actually had one, probably the most difficult though, was was like uh, that comes to mind now was um it was actually brian from japan droids band before uh they started japan droids he, he was like, just a lead guitar player in a band it wasn't really his band it was just some friends but they'd uh they'd come into the studio but they'd never really worked on their vocals before they'd uh, never really heard the lead singer sing like he, like i guess oh, he, that's my favorite yeah like like maybe he'd never heard himself sing or 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 what it was i don't know what it was but um so we tracked all the bed tracks and it was a live recording and it was really great it was it was it was actually awesome awesome and it's sounding really cool and stuff and and then we got to the we got to the lead vocals you know it's only just kind of a quick session three four days kind of thing and we got you know next day goes by we get we get to the lead vocals and the singer goes to sing and i set him up with a microphone and headphones just your regular old kind of headphone overdubbing session he went to sing and just like the notes were like just not even close to the notes that it should have been like they're just they're just not in the key of the song at all they're, they're not notes they're kind of more just sounds and i was like but they were really like optimistic like a really like uh really um almost like seager ross or something like really long operatic notes that just are not notes and i was like okay um i said can you hear yourself okay or you know he's like oh maybe a little more and i was like okay sure and i'm trying to help with the headphone mix and then it's still like way off and then i'm like um I'm, um, and then I'm like, well, can I give you some reverb in the headphones? And I did that. And then I was like, okay, what about if we, instead of singing through the headphones, why don't you sing through the monitors? Like I'll set you up some speakers and you can sing it overdubbing with the monitors behind the mic. You know, that's kind of a trick. And, uh, still he just couldn't sing and, you know, he's becoming increasingly more nervous and stuff like that. And, <laughs> and he's like, I really need a break. And I was like, cool, cool. And okay, well, let's take a break. Let's break for lunch. So I went out and got a sandwich or whatever. And I came back and the band was like, He's just like, I quit. I can't sing. I'm out. <laughs> wow. And I was like, okay, wow, okay. And and they, they just like right then and there, like, he quit. He quit the band. That was it. And the bass player was like, well, I guess I'm the lead singer now, but I've got nothing written. So see you in two months. I was like, <laughs> sounds good. See you in a couple months. And and the bass player came back and sang and he did a great job. Um, <laughs> nice. But, but that was an that was a very very awkward afternoon, and I, I'm not sure there was anything more I could do to help him with that. So I, I did the I did the best I could to, to to hold his hand, but I just couldn't hold it forever. I guess. <laughs> How about is there something that you're really interested in outside of the audio world, or you're really good at that you do outside of the audio world? 
Yeah, I mean, speaking of hobbies, like when I'm when I'm not when I'm not in the studio, you know, I live in beautiful British Columbia, Canada, which is one of the most beautiful natural environments in in North America. It's it's the it's the foothills of the Rockies. It's the it's the coastal mountains of BC, and it's it's an incredibly um, sensitive and diverse and beautiful ecosystem. So I spend a lot of the time actually in the backcountry. I have full like survival man, survival survival gear. I have biofuel stoves that can make electricity out of pine cones, water purification straws, so I can like drink from the river without getting beaver fever and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I, I go out into the backwoods for three or four days at a time on long hikes. Like I'll go for uh, 50, 60, 70, kilometer long uh, hikes uh, 40 40 miles for all you Americans um, I was, was going to say no one's going to know yeah, that yeah, yeah. <laughs> 30 or 40 miles for all the all the Americans and Brits yeah just really walk for days on end uh, with a, with a, with one or two buds of mine that's what we call a friend in Canada to translate that as well <laughs> uh, a bud that's one of my main things so kind of long walks I just really like to get away from technology get away from you know the internet and all that kind of stuff and you know Vancouver is a city it's a very very expensive place to live it's, it's surpassed a new York and San Francisco now, and it's, and it's it really is, it has like New York and San Francisco are still more expensive cities to rent in by a small amount, but in Vancouver you get paid less. So when you consider the affordability of the city, it's now the worst in North America and one of the worst in the world. So you know if you're going to pay to live here, you have to do it because it's one of the most beautiful cities in North America. Um, but but also what makes it beautiful, it's not the city itself; it's the surroundings that it's placed in, which is the reason why it's always been here for 20,000 years or more, long before Europeans ever even came here. So it's, I like to go out and really kind of uh, be in those backwoods and walk through the, you know, the mountains and the streams, just really kind of, yeah, really remember why there's a city here and, and appreciate what makes it such a, such a special place to live. Um, so that's probably my hobby. And I love cycling as well. Um, I do a lot of, I cycle to work, you know, most days and that kind of helps me shake off, use a computer at full speed, uh, for, you know, 10 hours a day. Say, 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 same for me on that one. Yeah. You got it. You got to keep the, keep the blood flowing to keep the, the brain awake too. Uh, keeps, keeps me, uh, being excited when I get to work instead of feeling like I'm in the slog. Mind you in the winter time right now where it rains a lot in Vancouver, you know, I've been been in my car a lot more than been on my bike, I must admit. Yeah, for me, that's just turned into the subway, yes, but same. So while we get into some of the music that shaped you now, um, what is a perfect record someone else has made and what makes it perfect? Well, I'm going to say because of the 25th anniversary, um, I would say a Green Day Dookie. Oh, you nice. Know, perfect yeah. pop punk record, influenced so many people. The vocals sound so good on it. Bayer M201. Great, Mike. Um, oh, is um, that really? I didn't know yeah, that. It's a Bayer M201. You know, everybody's got such a hard-on for the Shure SM7, which is a good mic, obviously. It was good for Michael Jackson. But, you know, the Shure SM7 is not the only dynamic mic that rocks on vocals. A Bayer M201 sounds so good on vocals. You've got to use a pop screen with it because it's, you know, sort of an instrument microphone. It doesn't really have a lot of pop production, but that's easy to get, get around. Yeah, but Green Day Dookie, I love the guitar sound. I, I believe it was mixed by Jerry Finn, who is who's Yeah, now, so when he was the assistant engineer on the record yeah and he just nailed it he also mixed uh, a jawbreaker dear you which is also a perfect record i just went and saw jawbreakers reunion show down in uh olympia the the second or third show they played in 25 years so i drove down to olympia and saw the jawbreaker reunion and um yeah which is also a perfect sounding record i love it both Stu and i at the studio have been so uh 
inspired by the sound of those records. Every single element to it, I think it's perfect. That's a perfect record. The other record that has just carried me also on a musical and emotional level as well and an inspirational level is the album Blacklisted by Nico Case. That is just a perfect sounding record. Um, Nico Case is, um, I mean, she's very revered and as revered as she is, I still think she's underrated. I think she's just phenomenal. One of the best singers of our time um, and lyricists and songwriters. The production on that record sounds absolutely beautiful. The, re- the choice of reverbs, all those vintage reverbs and just the way that the bass and her voice sound is so awesome. So all of her records sound great but I feel like on some of the more modern ones they sound just as good but they also felt that they had to push them just that tiniest little bit harder in the mastering or in the mix that makes them sound almost as good as Blacklisted but not quite you know Blacklisted is just a dB or two quieter and it just sounds that much better when you crank it up that's not me trying to be some righteous anti-loudness war guy (laughs) because I am not one my records are very loud but Blacklisted just sounds a bit better I'm gonna have to revisit that tonight yeah put on this song Deep Red Bells. I think it's the second or third cut on the record. That record just, that song, Deep Red Bells, sounds so beautiful. Um, And uh, yeah, I love it. I just saw her live in Vancouver uh, this last fall. She just gets better. You know, her her show, yeah, it was moving. It was fucking moving. So, yeah. So why don't we talk about five of your favorite records and how they shaped your musical growth? For musical growth, okay, the first record I ever got um, was Cyndi Lauper, She's So Unusual. (laughs) Nice. I was like, my parents were big music buffs. They have 10,000 albums. My dad's an audiophile and my mom, they've got huge, they got a huge stereo, Klipsch corner horn speakers and tube amps that my dad customized with his own custom crossover networks for the speakers and everything. But yeah, like I remember I was sitting outside of the pharmacy I, I used to get pneumonia and bronchitis a lot as a kid I, I had lung problems when I was young was waiting for my penicillin for the pharmacy and my mom had just dashed into the pharmacy to grab it while I kind of waited in the car because I was sick and um and I, with pneumonia on the radio she left the keys of the car the radio going and I heard uh, girls just want to have fun and I really liked the song and I was in grade two and um, because I was just like grade two and I didn't know about boys or girls or anything yet I just like I didn't even know if I was like is this song just for girls or you know what I mean like I, just, <laughs> I didn't have any idea that A that doesn't matter B that's not even a thing and um, my mom came out and I, she's like she saw me kind of bob my head and she was like do you like that song and I was like I love this song kind of you know but I, kind of, but I was kind of embarrassed it's like you know young kids are always kind of embarrassed all the time at least yeah. I was she goes yeah I could get you that record if you want it and I was like oh I don't know maybe you know and then the next day she came home from work and stopped at the record store and bought me uh, She's So Unusual on cassette and I listened to it a million times I own it on all three formats, uh, you know, or cassette, CD, vinyl, and I've bought it over the years in all those formats to replace the cassette where the, my the grease of my thumb over generations has worn all the writing off the side of the cassette, you know, and everything, and worn out the record, scratched the CD, you know, and yeah, actually, I went and saw her live um, this last Labor Day in Vancouver, and she was fantastic, also. So props to Cindy, she rocked, and her band rocks. 
And the weird thing of that's what launched John and Yellow's career. Oh, really? No way. Interesting. Yeah, he's an engineer on that record. Is he? And he and yeah. and, and the engineering is so good. The bass is so everything's so punchy and, and the synthesizer sounds like when, when they go into that ripping solo and money changes everything, like that crazy synth solo, it's so good. Like I don't know anybody since that has the guts to rip a solo on the synthesizer that's that bold. It sounds like it goes from being like laser beams to being popcorn, like popping. It sounds so cool i love it and uh, yeah she ripped that song live on this last tour and i loved it i and her band was great and plus she's just a great person i love uh she stands up for lgbtq rights very we need more people like cindy in the pop world um so that's one um another one would be um getting into rock i would say bon jovi slippery when wet um, oh man yeah, yeah. Because I heard that, so I was, now I'm in like grade four, and I'm you know I'm getting past the pop, and I'm starting to realize that I like you know some more guitar music and heavier music, if you will. So I I bought that, and um, me and my best friend just played catch in the backyard with the baseball and listened to that on repeat, and was just like, I don't know what they're singing about, I don't know what all this sexy stuff is, but I like the sound of that a lot, and just like totally love that record, and um, sounds epic, obviously. And that, I don't know if that one was the one done in Vancouver or not. I think it was. Yeah, I think that. that- that and New Jersey are both done at Little uh, Mountain. Yeah, pretty sure. Yeah, and my my landlords who own my studio now also own Little Mountain, where oh, wow, where they did Aerosmith, Pump, and uh, and yeah, Bon Jovi, and uh, they did um, uh, Doctor Feel Good by Motley Crue. Yes, yes, I went there on my visit there, and then we ended up working at Warehouse. I want to say. Oh yeah, yeah, Warehouse is yeah Brian Adams' big studio. That's just yeah. just down the street from my studio. Yeah, so so that was a big one just for rock, um, and also that one along with an appetite for Destruction by GNR came out the next year. And then I was like, no, I like it even more aggressive than Bon Jovi. But I'll give my third pick will be to um, And Justice for All by Metallica. Wow. I got that as the Columbia House Music Club selection of the month. <laughs> yes, I think I probably did too. Yeah, on cassette. And I just like... You know, I know some people like to, you know, shit on the production of that uh, record a bit because there's no bass, but I would argue that it's good, actually. I mean, I feel bad for Jason Newstead to a point, but he's a cool guy, and, and he went on to do lots of cool stuff, and he played on other great, he played on the Black album. I mean, geez, bass sounds good there. I think that album was actually mixed perfectly because it's just like at that time when that came out, everything in heavy metal was still very wet, and things were glammy, and things were sort of uh, sensational, you know, like, like, like even Metallica. Metallica's earlier work, it was still wet and it was it was epic in a cavernous sort of way. Whereas like uh, and Justice Came All came out and they had a, a heavier guitar sound. I don't know what I think it was Mexa Boogie Mark IVs or might yes, that and the Black Album are Mark IVs if I remember right. Yeah, and it's drier and it's tighter and it's bolder. And I don't know if that is the influence for metal that came after it, but it is my suspect suspicion. I mean to say that it is the influence for hardcore. So I grew up, you know, in the in the nineteen nineties, and although I was not straight edge. I really grew up in a straight edge hardcore music scene. Vancouver was a very like politically correct um, straight edge hardcore is very popular here. And I think the sound of a lot of the seminal straight edge hardcore bands, well, I guess the seminal straight edge hardcore was really from the 80s, Minor Threat and, you know, Gorilla Biscuits and stuff. R.I.P. Gorilla Biscuits too, uh, yes. to Alex. I feel like that shaped the sound of a lot of production that came down after of being drier and heavier and more palm mute driven, you know. Um, so that's a big one. It's, fu- it's funny because I feel like on this podcast when people cite the 
out they don't have the pride to say that one and they say master of puppets even though they might have been of the age where the black album or injustice for all because they just get embarrassed well, about it i like the songs on puppets even better i mean puppets is my favorite metallica album and one i all will always always love but i feel like justice for all was more influential to me it was more shocking to me when i heard it and uh, and made an impression on me and i remember actually you know having a five band eq a little graphic eq on my fisher ghetto blaster and hearing justice for all and thinking where is the bass and taking that bottom left band you know this is before i'm obviously a recording engineer i'm in grade seven at this point in time when that album came out but i was already into heavy metal have really heavily and i tried turning up the bass frequency on the five band graphic eq to try to hear the bass more and but yet it didn't work and i couldn't understand why when i turned that up do i only hear more kick drum and not bass guitar i thought that's the bass and that's when i really started objectively thinking about the sound of records and what made them sound the way they are so even though i kind of thought it was problem at the time now that i look back i'm like the kick drum sounds so good on that record it's maybe even almost worth it it's it sounds great and the kick drum performance is really good on that record so yeah so i really really like that so but before he started playing songs like where uh, he sounds like he's learning about the spot, how he plays. Probably, probably the last record they didn't write in the studio. You know, probably the last record that they hashed it out in the jam space, which which I still think is the best way to write one. Personal opinion. So yeah, so that's that would be number three. Um, so number four, I mean, it has to be something punk rock. It's not really an album because it's the greatest hits. I like the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and stuff like that. And I kind of discovered that through heavy metal because you know Megadeth covers Anarchy in the UK. Yes. And Skid Row covers Holidays in the Sun. So then my mom, again, for Christmas, bought me um, Nevermind the Bullocks, Here's the Sex Pistols, mm-hmm. and she also got me Ramones Mania, which is also great. Mm-hmm. And I loved those. But then, you know, I was in grade nine, and I remember I was in Spanish class, and my, my friend Tim, who was like a cool skater guy, was like, hey, man, if you like Ramones and Sex Pistols, you got to hear Descendants. And, mm. um, and he gave me um, a copy of, of Summary by Descendants, uh, which is also a greatest hits for the time. And I just loved it. I loved the songs, and I really loved the production, too. A lot of that was, I guess that would have been partially Bill Stevenson's production and partially Spot, yeah. But I, actually, I like the production on, on everybody's. I like all the production on all the Descendants records, actually, and including the new ones. I mean, I definitely look up to uh, Bill Stevenson and Steven Egerton, you know, for sure. I mean, just as people, too. I mean... Geez, you know, a lifetime in music, like, tip my hat to those guys. I mean, punk rock, like, come on. Those guys have always, uh, my band got to open for all a bunch of times in the 90s. Like, I, I love those guys. So that was a big influential one, as along was a Jawbreaker uh, 24-Hour Revenge Therapy. Yeah. So um, that, uh, which I didn't realize was Steve Albini at the time, because I don't believe he's credited on the record. I, I thought the story is that it's Steve Albini with Billy Anderson. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, you might know that story better than me. I'm pretty sure what it is is that Steve Albini laid down the basics and then when they weren't happy they Billy finished the record oh is that so well they did a great job I think because yes, it's, I it, agree it's got so much room and so much space and it just sounds like it sucks you into the record it, it's not everything on the surface it's got things in the background and even though I'm sure it's just a simple record although the songs are complicated they're, or they're well not complicated they're sophisticated is a better word because Blake Schwarzenbach is such a sophisticated lyricist and songwriter <laughs> yeah. but yeah like I love how you can how you can look into that record like an ashtray monument in like the little weird breaks and stuff like like in the mellower parts of that song, like you can listen in and you just, you just, you just hear them in a room together playing. And I've always loved that. And that that's definitely inspired some of my production where I really like to hear people uh, in a room together from time to time, even if it does sacrifice a bit of clarity to get that at times. So that's a big one. And then, um, 
for the final pick? I don't know. Um, I mean, I'd say maybe, again, Blacklisted by Nico Case because I just feel like that's, for alternative music production, that's kind of my favorite. So um, that's also my one of my favorite records of all time. So, I mean, I think that's when you get the sound and the songs, you know, as, as far as they can be for my taste. And, and that's uh, def- definitely inspired things. It inspired me to think about plate reverbs and think about stuff like that in a lot of ways. And, and you know, I'm more known for doing punk and metal and stuff like that, but I do a lot of singer-songwriter music too. Mm. And uh, so that kind of inspires me when I'm working on those records. And it's been a point of reference for me mixing for a long time. Nice. How about what's your favorite record of recent times that really inspires you? I'm inspired by um, almost everything by Kevin Morby and uh, and the Babies. I I love those records because they're just again they just sound so cool and they take you into a they take you into an environment with and I really I really love that. I, l- I like to feel like I can imagine being in a jam space with them or being something like that. So I haven't looked up who actually engineered or produced them, but um, I think Singing Saws was called the um, the Kevin Morby record I, I love i love that record i love the way it sounds uh, and i love the baby's record i guess that's probably a little bit older than that it's called our house on the hill i, I tend mm-hmm. to like kind of raw simple music like like jonathan richmond is my all-time favorite songwriter oh nice and i loved his last couple records as well like um uh oh moon queen of night on earth by Jonathan Richmond, I loved. Again, it's just him and Tommy Larkins playing in front of one microphone with no production. I really love that because, like, there's just nothing in in the way of what a higher level he's on as a person. Like, he's become this older man who's just got this really like deep love of of human beings and of people. And I think the incredible rawness in his records, like, really really get that emotion. It really speaks to me. So I really like that. And also like, you know, we're at a time um, where where production is so involved and so complicated. You know, sometimes it's really refreshing to hear something that's just very visceral. So, so mm. I'm, I'm, I was inspired by that. I haven't quite taken that to my own productions yet to do anything as bold as just like <laughs> one mic in the room. If a band was comfortable and wanted me to do that and I thought it was a good idea, I would I would totally consider it, you know, for sure. I think, I think it could be done. Nice. So that is the end of everything so now is the time for you to do a little self-promotion. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, what I've been working on, um, there'll be some new White Lung tracks coming down the pipe. So excited for that. In the future. It'll, it'll, it's still a little ways out. It is being worked on. Uh, yeah, the new Brutus record. Brutus are a band from Belgium that are very, very big in Belgium and getting very big in Western Europe, are quite big in England as well, and are about to become very big in the States. So I should say that the reason this podcast happened is you posted something on Facebook. I listened and fell so in love with this band that I reached right out to you. Yeah. Thank you so much for that as well. And thank you for having me on this podcast. My pleasure. Really happy to have the promotion because I don't actually promote myself. I, I don't really solicit bands and I don't I don't advertise or anything like that. So I just I just like let, let the records get out into the world and hope people hear them and like them and, and reach out to me to to work. So yeah, so I'm excited about the Brutus Rec comes out on Sergeant House. I think it's probably April is the official release. So it's pretty soon now. I'm inspired. I'm about to start work tomorrow on a great band called Woodhawk who are a very, very cool band from Calgary, Alberta. Kind of a stoner metal band, really great singers, great harmonies, great guitar playing. Um, So that's tomorrow. I'm inspired to work with a band that's mostly from Philadelphia. Also have a member from LA, a band called Fire in the Radio. Just an awesome melodic punk rock, melodic hardcore band. Um, well, not melodic hardcore, more, more of an indie rock, melodic punk rock band, but in the spirit of, you know, Jawbreaker or sometimes up into the spirit of Lifetime, maybe not quite as fast. They're awesome. I'm going to make their second full length. Uh, that'll be in June. So I'm very excited to make that. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's it. I'm going to launch a new website in the next 
couple of days where I'm going to have a lot of my more recent work posted. I haven't made a new website in five or more years. So jessegander.com, J-E-S-S-E with gander like the bird, like the goose.com. Easy to look for. Yeah, I'm going to have a ton of new material on there. And uh, yeah, this year is basically me celebrating 20 years without having a, a day job outside of being a recording engineer. So it's the turned, same for me. Yeah. I turned 40 last year. So I'm turning 41 and I'll be my 20. I've been doing this full time since 21. And this will also mark the 500 hundredth band I've worked with and the 600th release I've recorded for such bands. So that's definitely a milestone in uh, in my career. Those are probably the most exciting things that are happening. I'm also going on my uh, honeymoon to France. Oh, nice. In uh, May. So I'm really looking forward to doing that. I, I was just working in Belgium all week last week um, with a new band called Escape Elliot, um, who are from West Flanders, Belgium. And uh, yeah, I had a really cool time working over there. Really great bunch of kids, so I'll be mixing that. I hope to travel more. I'm going to do a record in Toronto and hopefully do a record in Philly as well pretty soon. So um, there's a lot of traveling coming up for work, and I, I love doing that. And yeah, just mainly if any bands ever want to work with me, like, um, you know, my, my, I'm pretty transparent with my pricing, and I always try to keep things affordable because I like to work and make money as much as the next guy. I'm not going to lie and say I don't. I've always tried to keep things punk rock because that's where I come from. And if people have an idea or a way to do a record cheaper or, or on the fly or they want to fly me out and work in their own studio or you don't want to record in the middle of a, in a barn somewhere in the middle of nowhere. I've done that kind of stuff so many times. So, so I'm always into doing different things like that just because also I own my own studio in Vancouver and it's, it's cool in a way to work in the same place all the time because you can, you know, you really know what you can get out of the place, and I've and I've all my special tools. But I really like working in other people's places uh, as well. Uh, in West Flanders, I was working on a forty-eight channel year two thousand SSL nine thousand J series. I guess. Yeah, well, that's 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 the one of that era. Yeah, it's like the modern. The, it's basically the most modern SSL of that era before they kind of went into their more current offer offerings. Everybody got mad about the mix bus on. You weren't mad about the mix mix bus on it. I feel like the whole world hated the way that crunched compared to the four thousand. Yeah, it's kind of a drier sound. I, I didn't mix on it, but I kind of felt that way too. However, I gotta say, I thought the mic preamps on it sounded awesome i actually shot out um he had a 1073 a neve uh, ams neve reissue and i actually shot out the built-in ssl microphone on uh, the vocalist and liked the built-in ssl one more on her voice so i don't know the dynamics was killer the the eqs i thought sounded killer and the mic pre sounded really killer so but yeah the mix buses maybe um doesn't feel as harmonically like rich or as interesting as my Neve VRL, but also, you know, there's a lot of people out there that hate the Neve VRL as well. Um, and, and I do not. Um, there, there are people that really don't like the mic pre's on a Neve VRL. Why? I don't know. Because we have so, so many killer boutique mic pre's at my studio between the four or five engineers that work there. A lot of them like the built-in ones the best also. So, you know, there you go. Sometimes just a, a good, clean, fast, uh, Transistor preamp just sounds kick-ass. So. No, I agree, yeah. Sound great. Yeah, so, um, but yeah, basically for promotion and beyond that, you know, I'm on Facebook a little bit. I don't use Facebook a ton, but I, I try to at least share um, some of the links from bands that are having little bits of success just to support them. And I use Instagram as well, um, All that's, uh, although that's usually pictures of sunsets. I said that. <laughs> yes, I, it is. I, got, I put the odd picture of, of microphones too, but I'm, I'm the kind of guy that appreciates a good sunset. <laughs> nice. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think that's a perfect ending to that. But dude, I really appreciated getting to know you on this. Really, Brad, you know, I really appreciated your work for a while. So great to hear what goes on behind it. Thanks so much, Jesse. And uh, yeah, I also, I'd love to, um, I was going to ask you about the, the noise creators as well. Um, um, how does one sign up for that? Do you just sign up? Oh yeah, I, I'll, I'll send you a link. I'd love to throw you up on it. I, th- I think I hit you and Stuart back up a long time ago, but. You did, and it was, it was on my list. And then I never got to that spot on the list. Uh, and now I'm, ins- yeah. now I'm. I know that one well. <laughs> yeah, now I'm, ins- uh, now I'm, ins- actually, I had a cancellation for, for four or five days last month, which I just was like, I needed a break anyways. So I scratched a hundred things off the list and I've got to like, I, I really want to sign up for noise creators be a part of that website for you awesome i will send you over a link and yeah maybe what i'll try to do is i'll try to get you up before this launches so we can link that as well and link your website and all that that'd be killer and uh yeah if you're ever in vancouver uh let's uh, go for a walk in the woods and come check yeah. out my studio that would be awesome and the same same if you're ever in new york and even if you're doing that record in philly i end up down there a good amount so If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 